Hello, this is Emlyn and Jada with another episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs. On this podcast, we interview medical professionals in order to get a better idea of what it is they do and why they do it. We also listen as they tell us their story, recounting how they chose to go into medicine. On today's episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs, we're going to be talking to Corey Callahan, a paramedic in the Montgomery County Hospital District who's also involved in SWAT surfaces and community-based stop-the-bleed trainings. A quick warning before we get started. In this episode, we'll be discussing the graphic realities of what first responders see and the mental health struggles that sometimes accompany it, so please take care when you're listening to the show. Okay, let's get to the good stuff. Hey. Hi. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. Just uh, trying to wrangle up kids all day. So if you hear some screaming babies in the back. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Um, yeah, well, yeah, it's nice to see you again. Yeah, um, you too. So we just wanted to kind of start off um, asking about uh, where you went to high school and what you were interested in at the time, um, if it was medicine related or not. Yeah, so I, uh, I went to Tumble High School um I graduated now like 12 years ago and um at the time in high school no I did not even think I would do medicine I uh, honestly I had no idea what I wanted to do I, my career path had changed so many times <clears throat> I um I mean I thought I was going to do the military then at one point I thought I was going to be like a preacher at one point. I thought I was going to do chemistry. I mean, I was all over the road. Um, but I guess kind of how I got started was um, my junior year of high school. One of my friends <clears throat> was a uh, was like a volunteer firefighter or something, and so. He um, was always wearing, you know, his like volunteer firefighter shirt or whatever everywhere he went. And uh, he would talk about all the cool things he got to go do. And so I was like, man, I want to go try that. That seems like fun. And so I went and I volunteered at a small department called Rose Hill Fire Department. And um, I'm sure you probably don't know where Rose Hill Fire Department's at or where Rose Hill is. Well. <laughs> You'd be uh, in the same boat as about 99% of America. Uh, Rose Hill is like a small little dot on the map. It's in between like Cypher and Tomball. And all they have out there is like two roads, a Dollar General, and a bunch of grass. You know, um, So with that, they have a lot of time to do extra training and stuff. So I'd go there and we, were, we would do some fire training. Um, they get a lot of grass fires too. And so, um, but with that, since we had a lot of downtime, we did have a lot of, uh, you know, what we call family time, you hang out at the table, you know, you play, you know, card games, board games, whatever. And, uh, I fell in love with that environment, like the, the brotherhood behind it. And so uh, I started to ask like, okay, well, Hey, you know, I'm about to be 18. Like, what do I need to actually do to, to actually work here? You know? And get a get a check. Um, and so they're like, hey, well, first thing you need to do is <clears throat> you need to go to fire school. And fire school, then you need to go to EMT school. So I was like, okay. Um, so I went to Teeks and I got my uh, fire certs. And um, I had also gone to Teeks to get my uh, EMT cert. And um, Teeks is a, uh, it's not a college, obviously. Teeks is a, uh, it's a vocation center, right? So they do a lot of uh, different certifications for many things. So they're very famous for their fire school. Um, and they also have a really prominent police academy. Um, they're out in College Station right next to A&M. And they have this massive uh, city, they call it disaster city. And it's just like crash buildings. They have like big pipeline areas. They got like, uh, airplanes. Uh, like when you graduate fire Academy, they like light the airplanes on fire and you put the airplanes out for your family to watch. Um, they've got train wrecks. I mean, the city is insane. Um, 
And so I was like, okay, I did their fire academy and it was really, it was really great. And so I was like, no way their EMT stuff is it's gonna be bad. And so I, uh, I went to their EMT school. I did that. Uh, I did a fast track course. So from zero to getting my EMT was uh, five weeks long, which is pretty fast <laughs> looking back at it. And um, during my clinical times, I uh, actually, I hated it. I uh, didn't think that I would continue with medicine at all just because of how, um, how much I didn't like it, you know, um, just because uh, the reason why I didn't like it was, you know, growing up, you know, you hear that, you know, when people call 911, it's, uh, it's life and death, you know, and so whenever I was uh, doing clinicals and ride outs, I quickly found out, right, that that's definitely not the case, you know, people call 911 for many things, and it just wasn't initially what I thought it would be, and that, uh, and as an EMT, T level, I was, uh, I felt like I didn't have a lot of I wasn't able to do a lot, you know, and so it just wasn't what I initially thought it would be, but I ended up getting my EMT and, and so then I was still trying to chase my dream of being a firefighter. <laughs> and so, so with that, you have to take a lot of different tests to get into the fire department and a lot of it is point-based. So if you wanted a job at a very, you know, reputable department, you had to have a, obviously a lot of number of points and there's candidates that are testing for the same job, you know, all over the country. So it's very competitive. And I found out the most people that were testing for the job and were getting them were paramedic or were, you know, veterans and things like that who were getting these extra points. And so to get this better job, I said, I'll go back into medicine and I'll go get my paramedic and maybe that'll be better. And I actually ended up falling in love with it there and uh, I actually never went back to the fire department. <laughs> but being a paramedic was a lot better for sure. Yeah. So it sounds like you shortly after you were in that disaster city getting your fire certification um you thought to yourself like how could emt certification beat this was that certification was that like one step on the path of becoming a firefighter or was that or was that certification different like your own interest no so it was on the path to become a firefighter okay before you know a long time ago i say a long time ago um in the early, you know, I guess, start of the fire departments, right? All they did was they fought fire. If it was a medical call or anything else, that was EMS's problem. Fire and EMS were very separate. But as time progressed, they started sort of blending in together. So now a lot of times if you call 911, most people uh, don't realize it, but uh, the fire departments come with us also. And that's for, uh, you know, if we need the extra manpower on helping them, you know, get out of, you know, the house and help move them to the stretcher or the ambulance, or maybe the, um, the call isn't what we think it is. You know, sometimes uh, people may call because they see somebody fall, but really it's because they fell because they went into cardiac arrest, you know, and so we need those extra hands on deck so that we can provide, you know, the best patient care to these people. And so with that, right, having the more help obviously is in turn better for us as medical providers, as well as, you know, for uh, the civilians and stuff like that, that we protect. Uh, and the other thing, too, is that uh, we're also teaching fire departments some basic uh, medical interventions as well. You know, in Montgomery County, we teach our fire departments how to place an advanced airway. So that helps us out with people that are in cardiac arrest, helps us uh, get that standard of care a lot faster. Uh, the other thing that we help teach our fire departments now is to give epi, just like for like if someone is having an allergic reaction, so we can get that medicine on board faster to help them out. So. The fire department now is kind of blending in more medical. And so all of that ties into the fact that whenever I was trying to do the fire department, they were pushing everybody now to go to, uh, to have their EMT. And so to become a fire department member, I had to go get my, my EMT certification. So that's why I went that route. Got it. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that there was like a, almost like a process or transition from it just being firefighting alone to being firefighting and medical services. Um, a lot of the earlier experiences you described, whether starting at that volunteer fire department or not volunteer fire department, but um, beginning to volunteer there and um, having that interest in fire and you know, it sounds like you enjoyed your certification. 
Um, do you remember either the key moment or a couple of the experiences that really like, I guess, catalyzed your love for being a paramedic? Like what changed that course for you? Um, so what made me fall in love with being a paramedic was um, at an EMT level, it's very like, you see this, you do this, you know, A, you know, plus B always equals C kind of thing. Uh, and I felt like there was really no way to uh, almost like deviate or create your own uh, art, I guess, in that job. But as a paramedic, um, you are given uh, obviously a whole lot more tools, but it's also a, a thinking man's game. And I think that is what made me fall in love with it. You know, for instance, you know, if I have somebody who's really hurting, really hurting, you know, maybe they broke their leg or they got burned or something. And I, and I can only give them a certain amount of a pain medication, you know, due to whatever circumstance, you know, let's say maybe their blood pressure is a little low and I can't give them any more because I'm afraid it'll lower their blood pressure. Well, how can I make this a uh, hundred mics of fentanyl feel like more, you know? Um, so in paramedic school, right, you learn that we have medications, you know, one of them being uh, promethazine. It's an anti-nausea medicine. Um, but another thing that it does is that it potentiates the effects of narcotics. So with that, right, it may make that 100 uh, fentanyl maybe feel like 150 or 200, right? So it can help go a little bit longer. Um, so we can give them that. Also, there's a benefit that it will help you know, reduce the nausea effect so that he doesn't, you know, or that they don't feel nauseous and throw up. Um, so creating aspects in like that or really problem solving, you know, if I have a sick patient, you know, their heart rate is really high and their blood pressure is really low, trying to figure out exactly, you know, what was this cause, you know, because when you're given a patient, you always have to uh, be thinking, you know, so many steps ahead, right? Is their heart rate really fast because this is a cardiac problem? Or is their heart rate really fast because they're uh, compensating their you know, septic shock or you know, whatever the case may be? And I really enjoyed that aspect. That and also being able to see the fruits of your labor, right? Being able to have somebody who can't breathe and to be able to give them medicine and to you know, perform these critical interventions and actually like see like what you're doing, making a difference in somebody's life is a, uh, you know, is obviously a big reward, you know, and it's not something you get to do, do all the time. You know, I mean, I would, I would say, you know, for probably, you know, 85% of the time someone calls 911, they're, they're relatively minor, right. But you know, that other 15% or so, or people who truly do need uh, 911 or an ambulance and being able to kind of make a difference in that, in that regard is, you know, it makes it worth it for sure. Yeah. Problem solving is definitely something um, that I've seen a lot of when we're uh, out in the field and working with a lot of the patients. Yeah. But when I first met you, you were teaching us uh, the bleeding control, yes. like during our internship training. Mm -hmm. And when you walked in, you kind of introduced yourself um, by talking about a few of the different, uh, I guess, groups that you are part of um, yeah. throughout your career. And I feel like I remember you mentioning um, like Army, paramedics, SWAT, and possibly FBI, but I wasn't really sure. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. um, <laughs> I was a little confused, but so, can you just kind of clarify yes, like, what yeah, you're part yeah, of? Yeah. Um, so I, um, I'm a combat medic for the Army. I also am a SWAT medic. So I am on uh, the Montgomery County SWAT team. Uh, I obviously provide medical coverage for their team. Um, but one thing that I helped kind of establish with MCHD is our uh, tech ops program. And so in that, there's me and a handful of other guys. And what we do is we provide medical coverage for numerous uh, groups. So if there is, you know, anybody who's going to serve a high risk warrant, right. Or if they are going to, if they're going to be in potentially a hostile environment or 
whatever special circumstance, you know, I have a select few of guys who are trained to perform, uh, you know, medical interventions in a hostile environment, as well as, you know, these guys have a specialized training with these departments that we work with. So we kind of perform coverage almost in the general region. We will also go outside of Montgomery County. Um, but with that, right, I mean, we work a lot with Montgomery County SWAT, uh, Conroe SWAT. Uh, we've done a lot with uh, the Conroe ISD, uh, their special response team. Uh, so with that, right, th those are uh, school police officers, but the police officers, they have a special team that is designed, obviously, for active shooters, any sort of, uh, you know, hostage event that would potentially happen in a school. Um, we've also performed, you know, medical coverage for FBI, DEA, ATF, um, all sorts of different groups of people. Um, so if they know that they're going into, uh, if they're going to perform a warrant or if there's an active situation, you know, maybe somebody took somebody hostage in a, in a building or if someone has barricaded themselves, they will call me or they'll call uh, another guy in our, uh, in our little program you know, and, and we will provide those resources to them. We've been doing that um, probably the last nine years. And I've been a part of the team itself uh, or uh, the SWAT team officially for the last seven years. That's incredible. I had no idea that there was um, such a network involved with being a paramedic. I mean, I'm sure people can just stick to their um, like hospital system or that small smaller care system, but um, it sounds like it has much broader, much wider applications that you have covered. Um, oh, yeah. I was, yeah, I was wondering if you could like maybe discuss what kind of specialized training was involved when you decided to join that SWAT team. Did you have to do any extra? Because it sounds like um, not only was it perhaps a patient's life in danger, but, you know, your own life in danger, depending on the situation. Right. Yeah, I've, uh, I've done a lot. Um <laughs> I guess before I'll go into that, um, yeah, I mean, being a paramedic, uh, I mean, opens you up to, to, to so many different platforms to perform medicine. You know, I mean, there's medical coverage on, you know, uh, like offshore rigs for oil and gas, right? There's people that live on these barges or whatever. I, I don't know what they live on, right? But they need medical coverage as well. And so a lot of times companies will hire paramedics. I had also looked into doing some contracting. Um, people were offering contracts to go to Antarctica, be a medic in Antarctica. Uh, obviously, you can do military contracting overseas as a civilian paramedic, or you can be, you know, paramedics at, you know, special events such as rodeos, concerts, whatever, or obviously, you know, working in a hospital system. Uh, but anywhere you're going to go, we're going to have a mass gathering of people, whether it be for work or an event or anything, you know, you're going to have to have some sort of medical coverage for everybody. So having that paramedic background really opens the door to a lot of different avenues in which you can work in. But how I got into mine, uh, or how I got into the, uh, I guess the the tactical environment in general was a really big passion of mine, and it's uh, it's still probably my biggest passion today. Uh, but it, it started out with the fact that we we were doing training, uh, just teaching you know regular training to our company, and there was a an officer that worked at the hospital and I would see him all the time, you know, dropping patients off. And he, um, he had asked us, Hey, uh, would you guys be able to come in and, you know, teach my guys refresher on how to put a tourniquet on? And I was like, of course, you know, so we went and we taught them how to do tourniquets. Uh, eventually that led to uh, them going, Hey, uh, later on, we're going to do a warrant. Uh, you know, the address is going to be over here. Do you guys mind staging close by just in case something were to happen? You know, we have you there. So we said for sure. So we went and we staged with them afterwards. Uh, after, you know, the, the, the warrant was over with or whatever. They came by and they thanked us for us being out there. You know, we're like, of course, you know, anything you guys ever need, let me know. Like, I don't mind doing this. This is, you know, something different, right? Different than my day-to-day -day job of, you know, doing what I always do. So I, I enjoy the, the difference. So they're like, of course. And so with that right relationship kept building, you know, they kept asking for different more trainings or, hey, will you come stand by at one of our trainings just in case one of our guys get hurt? And so with that, you know, I, you know, kept volunteering and standing up like, hey, I want to do this job. 
And so with that, they're like, hey, we're going to go do some medical training. Would you like to come with us? And so the first thing that we went to go do, first medical training that I got to do with these guys was uh, a course called, they don't do it anymore, but it was called ATERC. <laughs> and what it stands for was uh, Advanced Integrated Response Tactics. Um, this was a course provided by a company called Alert. Uh, Alert stands for Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training. It's currently the, uh, it's a federally funded program, you know, through FEMA, and they focus on having a standardized approach to an active shooter response. You know, specifically like, you know, with school shootings, obviously there's a mass problem with that. And so this is the, the government's response to help have some standardized trainings from all departments all across the U.S. that if an event is happening, you know, everybody can be on the same page. Because in these scenarios, you know, communication is, is paramount. It started off with a, with a group of guys right after Columbine in San Marcos that noticed the problem. They're like, well, here's how we're going to fix that for our county. Once these guys developed their program, they started teaching it to, you know, San Marcos cops. And they slowly started to expand um, with that. The federal government caught wind of what they were doing. They loved it. And now they're a fully you know, funded program and they go all around the U.S. teaching these sorts of trainings. You know, and, and these group of guys, they have different courses and different levels that they go through. You know, they kind of break it down into three, three different levels. First one, a level one, what they call it, uh, is primarily for, for officers. And what that has to do with, as soon as the call comes out that there's an event, you know, how does the first spawning officer go into this scenario? How do they handle the situation? And what do they do when the situation is handled, right? Rather the, the, rather the shooter gives up or they place him in custody. What do you do from the beginning to that point? And then level two has to do with, well, now that we have the shooter, or whatever the case is, the, the threat handled, and what do we do with all these patients? So level two talks about how do we treat these people? How do we get other resources to the scene so that we can provide you know, more efficient medical care? And then level three is about how do we get these patients out, as well as how do we uh, start building our command structure so that we can have uh, more organization so that we can, you know, be more efficient in managing this scene altogether. Um, so I started taking those classes with them. Uh, once I started taking those classes, getting a little bit more knowledge on just some basic, basic tactics, as well as just basic, I mean, I guess for a lack of a better word, you know, combat battlefield type medicine, and just kind of shifting my, my scope from, civilian EMS to more of a tactical military type style. Um, that's kind of where that all began. And after kind of serving on their team, it's just uh, as a helper, they gave me, uh, Montgomery County gave me the opportunity to, to test for their team. And their test is a, it's a really rigorous test. You go out for, you know, a couple days out in the woods and you're awake the whole time and they work you like crazy, you know, you do a bunch of PT, and you do a lot of running. And then when you think you're done running, you run some more and then, you know, you're performing um, different skills, you know, land navigation, you're performing rescues. Um, you are um, trying to make these split second decisions uh, for the benefit of the team. And if you are able to make it through their assessment then you go back later on and you do a panel interview and if you pass the panel interview and the assessment uh, they will extend you an invitation to be on their team i did that uh, we had started out with a group of i think 25 of us and then within the first three hours there was four left <laughs> so it was, it was it's not for the faint of heart i'll tell you that but um it was definitely the Hardest thing I've ever done, for sure. Harder than any of the military training I've ever done. Harder than 
you know, all the school. <laughs> yeah, the training definitely sounds um, very intense. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to say, I, I did notice that you talked a lot about, um, you know, how you got into teaching and especially focusing on, you know, mass shootings um, or school shootings. And that kind of took us, uh, that took me back to when you were teaching us um, bleeding control and teaching us how to use the tourniquet for the first time. I just remember we had played with them a little bit the day before, um, but <laughs> she, she didn't really make us put them on and it wasn't really that big of a deal. And then you came in and listed all the groups you've been a part of. And I was like, oh man, I have a feeling this is not going to be so easy. Uh, and sure enough, you came around and checked all of us. Oh, I was yeah. like, no, it needs to be tighter, it needs to be tighter. Um, but you were telling us some of the experiences um, of when you've used a tourniquet, not just for work, but even outside of work. And I think it's um, kind of important just to share with the listeners uh, how important the tourniquet is and when you think the most important um, time to have it is and, you know, um, kind of what the benefit of using a tourniquet is. Oh, for sure. So like when I was going through EMT school and paramedic school, you know, back then, you know, the, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan was, was obviously ongoing, but it was still kind of in the early st stages, maybe almost in the middle. Um, but when I was in school, um, people would say, hey, if you're putting a tourniquet on, this is our last ditch effort. You know, if you're putting a tourniquet on, you can call that limb goodbye. You might as well say, you know, they're not going to ever have that limb. So a lot of times tourniquets were put down to the very bottom of your bag. You wouldn't even know if you even had a tourniquet. It didn't really matter. Um, it was uh, a tool that we had that was very, you know, frowned upon to use. Um, but obviously, you know, where we get a lot of our trauma research and education, it obviously comes from the military background, right? What is the current war? Um, what tools are they using? What is their research like? And the, the answers that they get from that trickle down into obviously the civilian side, because it doesn't matter if you get shot in Houston, Texas, or if you get shot in, um, Afghanistan, right? The, a bullet hole is still a bullet hole, right? My body's going to bleed the exact same as it does in Afghanistan, as it does down here in Houston. You know, so what are they doing is that it's working? What can we take from them so that we can provide better care for us here uh, on the state side? And obviously through a lot of research uh, that they were learning that, you know, these tourniquets that we, you know, had forgotten about and that we were putting on the back burner were actually saving, you know, a lot of lives. And there is, you know, numerous research, you know, that backs that up. There is uh, special committees, you know, there's, you know, obviously the, the most, you know, influential one is the, they call it the COTSI, the Committee of uh, Tactical Casualty Combat Care, you know, it's a, it's a board of doctors who take all this evidence and all this research that uh, is going on on battlefield medicine, you know, something that is tried, true and tested. Uh, and they're figuring out what is working for these patients and what is not. And obviously with that, you know, tourniquets were, were huge. Um, bleeding out is the most preventable cause of uh, death on the battlefield. That's kind of the number one issue. Well, what can we do to stop that? And tourniquets have been that answer. Um, and uh, for me, yeah, it is very important. Obviously, I'm probably biased, right? Because I've done a lot of this training before, and uh, I've I've used tourniquets, and um, thankfully been fortunate enough to kind of help out some people by applying a tourniquet. And so for me, I I carry it with me kind of wherever I go. Um, but you know, a lot of people think that a tourniquet, you know, may only be used for if someone you know loses a limb or if they've been shot, you know, and that's that's not the case at all. You know, a tourniquet is used for any sort of life-threatening bleeding and or some questionable life-threatening bleeding. Um, for instance, I think the one I told y'all was I was driving home or driving home from work or driving to work. I don't know. Uh, but there was a car wreck in front of me and a guy had, uh, he had like cut his arm, like right on his forearm. And he had uh, an arterial bleed, you know, thankfully I had a tourniquet on me and I was able to apply the tourniquet and, you know, stop that life-threatening bleed. I mean, is it lucky? Could you say that for sure? You know, but 
I mean, also being prepared, you know, also can play a factor. I always have one with me. Part of what, you know, people say that they you have an EDC, which is like your everyday carry, you know, so like, oh, I, every day I read, I always carry my, my phone, my wallet, my car keys, you know, whatever, or a pocket knife, you know. And so for me, like I have a, a small little tourniquet that I, that I carry with me, you know, one, because I'm a medical guy. And so I always want to have a little bit of something to kind of help out myself, family or friends. Or if I get into a situation like that again, if, you know, someone less fortunate is in a wreck, you know, if I can do something to potentially help save them or at least kind of stall that to get them to, you know, some better medical care, then of course I'll take it with me, you know, but tourniquets are, are great. And there's a lot of research just supporting just the massive benefit that they have. Yeah, that's very interesting. I had no idea the um, wide spectrum application of them. Just from what I've learned, it's typically like you had said, like emergency situations, but um, I guess what most people hear, like you said, are like gunshots and things like that, but I never considered car crashes. Um, so I just wanted to take a step back and you had said that, you know, probably 85% of the calls you get as a paramedic are not life-threatening, but what about that 15%? I was curious, you know, that 15%, you're in those situations and it's often life-threatening. And I'm sure you've seen some crazy things. Maybe Jada will ask you, or maybe Jada knows, you know, some of the craziest or most exciting cases you've seen, which from a purely medical standpoint, I'm sure are extremely interesting. But we have to remember that these medical professionals, you guys are humans too. Um, how, how does someone in your field, or how do you specifically um, manage your mental health. Like, I'm sure it's hard to see these things at times. And, you know, how do you stay in your career for the long run? No, that's actually, uh, that's super big for me, actually, especially like right now. Um, it's very tough. So I, I've been in EMS now for, I don't know, like 12 years now, give or take 12, 13 years. And it's very tough. And like PTSD and depression, uh, are really big for me just because, I mean, I've battled through them obviously. And I think what people kind of, I guess, skip over is the fact of, uh, just how, how it comes on. You know, a lot of people think that, um, it's going to be these most super devastating calls that are going to, you know, provide the most problems and that's not always the case you know some a call that might make me sensitive may not be a problem for you but a call that might you know cause you to get into your head you know might not be uh might be nothing for me everybody whether you know it or not has something that's that's going to grip you right because at the end of the day you know, we're humans right we have emotions no matter how callous you think you are, at the end of the day, right, there's going to be something that pulls at your heartstrings. Uh, for me, right, I got an army of children out there. I've got like four of them and they keep growing and multiplying. But, you know, so kids, right, those are, that's a very sensitive area for me. Um, but also, you know, it doesn't even have to be that. Um, it could be something as, as simple as, like uh, a cross on a highway, right? So I personally try not to work where I live just because I don't want those kind of daily reminders. You know, I've done that before. Um, I've worked on friends before that have called. I've, um, I've worked on family and I, you know, obviously don't want to do that. So I try to <laughs> go away from all that. But, you know, I mean, there's times where I'm driving down the road and you know, I'll see crosses on the side of the road from maybe a car wreck that I had worked, you know, and so, um, you know, so when I see that, you know, for a brief moment, like, I remember, and so I, I think and I dwell on that. But I think, for me personally, I think every time you see, you know, something bad, or maybe you've seen someone who's died, you know, whether it be traumatic or not, I think every time you see that, I think it does. I think it takes like a slowly takes a piece of you, whether it's really big or really small, 
but eventually it starts to pile up. And with our profession, you know, being a first responder, uh, suicide rates are climbing really high. And you would think that, you know, having a group of people dealing with the same calls that you do on an everyday, that there would be a very tight knit group that you can talk and vent. And unfortunately, uh, people don't feel that way. People like to hold it inside because they feel like if they express that they're sad or that they're depressed, uh, they fear that their peers are going to look down on them or they fear that if I tell my job that, man, I'm really struggling or I'm having these, you know, these bad thoughts or these nightmares that I'm going to lose my job. They're going to think I'm not mentally fit. Um, one, that's obviously not the case at all. Um, for me personally, you know, I've, I've reached out to people because I've had hard times before. I've, I've been on some really bad calls. Um, and I've, you know, I've reached out to talk to people and it's, it's made a difference for sure. You know, there's in the army, you know, I learned, you know, you always hear the thing, you know, embrace the suck, you know, got to keep pushing on, but there's nothing like embracing the suck with your friends, you know, and just like, you know, if you have family, right. If you have brothers or sisters or whoever, right. If someone is, you know, handling a burden, right. Your family, your friends, they come help take that burden with you. And, uh, and that's been good. Obviously, you know, um, for me personally, I've, uh, I've talked to therapists, you know, cause I have, you know, PTSD or whatever. And with that, the therapist, they, uh, for me, they didn't really help out that much and obviously not lack on, on them at all. They do a, you know, a great job, but, you know, just people are different. So for me talking about, you know, the traumas that I've been exposed to doesn't really, didn't really help me out too much just because for me, my problem was I didn't, it wasn't like I did anything wrong. You know, if I came across something tragic, I didn't do a grave mistake to where I needed to, you know, get these things out. My problem was, you know, I have these images in my head or I, and they're attached to things like smell or how I feel, right? Whether, oh, is it cold air outside? Oh, is, can I smell, you know, the gas on the road from a car wreck or, you know, whatever, you know, so once it's attached to different sorts of senses, you know, it gets rooted deeper and deeper into you. So for me, what helps obviously is having a, a really good support system at home. You know, my, my wife is very supportive and she's very big on mental health and that has been huge. Um, so what, what helps for me is coming home and having a really good support system being able to use my energy in a productive way, rather be going to the gym or, you know, doing yard work or, you know, doing something productive definitely helps out. Um, when people get in these uh, bouts of depression, all they want to do is just, you just want to sit in bed and you don't want to move. You don't want to do anything. And if you're ever talking to a psychiatrist or a doctor and they're trying to evaluate how depressed are you? That's one of the things they ask is, you know, do you lay in bed all day? Do you sleep more than 12 hours? Do you even go outside? Do you talk to anybody? So the first thing you got to do is you got to get out of bed and you got to start slowly moving and working. And so that helps out a lot, obviously. Um, there's a whole host of other treatment options. There's ketamine infusions. I have done those and I, I've seen the most success with that personally, but with mental health, it's, it is a very new focus recently on just EMS and first responders in general. And um, I think that, or I'm glad that there's awareness and I'm glad that there's momentum in identifying that. Obviously, I think that there still needs to be more work done, but obviously, you know, it's kind of, early onset, right? You know, years and years, you know, people had pushed mental health down as if you have mental health problems or if you're struggling with, you know, depression or PTSD, then you're just a crazy guy or something, you know, and obviously that's far from the case. 
and uh, the world is now finally seeing that. And I think now taking you know some very key actions into to helping out in that realm for sure. Yeah, I like that you mentioned earlier um, that you know a lot of people um, keep what they've experienced to themselves, and they don't want to tell people at work or their friends or their family just because they feel like it makes them feel weaker. Um, or that they're not as strong as they should be uh, for someone who works in that field. And I think it's really important that you focus on how, you know, that's not necessarily the case and that sometimes you have to reach out to those people and you have to kind of work together like teamwork um, yeah. to get through everything. Um, and of course, mental health is such a big deal. And we've only just started asking this question. Um, I guess just like everyone else, we've kind of forgotten to ask it. And now it's, um, we're trying to bring it in to see, you know, what are some of the things that medical professionals do to deal with what they see every day? Right. Um, and speaking of what you see every day, I mean, I've been on the ambulance and I've seen some of the more common cases. And I know that uh, a lot of what you guys get is just like fevers or, you know, they just need to be taken to the hospital. Um, but since you've seen so many interesting cases, we we're wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about what, have, um, like what some of your more interesting cases do look like. Um, let's see. I mean, that's, it's hard to answer on the spot. So like, cause each, each person and each individual can stick out for, you know, so many different reasons, you know, I mean, you could have a severe, you know, schizophrenic patient who will just, who could say just crazy, bizarre things. And, you know, that'll obviously make them stick out or you could have a very uh, traumatic call that'll stick out you know, or, you know, you could have, you know, people, you know, will always stick out for different things. But I mean, for me, I think kind of, I mean, what sticks out, I guess, from just abrupt thinking is probably the first person I saw that that was in cardiac arrest. And I think I, I think I even told y'all's group, like, if, if you're, uh, if you're going to somebody in cardiac arrest to really, before you go in there, stop and evaluate your mind. And if you think you would be able to handle it, um, just because for me and that, right, I can, I can remember every little detail about that, that call, right? I remember, you know, it was this, it was a COPD guy. He had lung cancer, throat cancer, stage four, you know, he had all sorts of radiation treatment done and chemo done. So his, his airway was all scarred up or whatever. But I remember, you know, he had fallen and, you know, there were these rocks and he, you know, he had cut the back of his head. And so they were white rocks and they were like just, you know, they were covered in blood and it had clotted up at this point uh, while we were working on them. And I remember we had uh, we had struggled to get an airway just because of how scarred his his airway was. It made it very, very narrow. And so, you know, with that, we had to cut his throat and put a tube down his throat, you know, through a trach versus, you know, intubating the patient like we normally would. And also, I mean, that stands out, too, because it's not every day that you uh, perform a a surgical crike on somebody. It's a very rare skill. I think in my total 12 years of EMS, I've only, I've personally cut one person. I've been a part of two others. So three in my whole career. So those stick out for sure. I think, uh, I mean, you know, a big humbling moment. I'll tell you a big humbling moment that made me uh, really take a step back in your career. In EMS, you always hear, uh, oh, you know, this person is a paragod or whatever, you know, they think that they can cure cancer and they know everything and everything about, you know, life and whatever. And I was not there yet, thankfully. I, uh, but I did, I was getting newfound confidence and which confidence can be really good or obviously really bad, right? You find that you got to walk that line of, am I cocky, you know, or am I, uh, humble with what I know and willing to share and and I was young and we had uh we were on a really busy truck and we had got a late call we did this late call we're driving back from a late call and normally if you have late call 
you were not allowed to stay over two hours past our shift. So even, you know, our shift ends at 7 a.m. So if it's 9, 9.01 and there's a really, really bad call, you know, our policy says it doesn't matter. Like you need to go home because you need obviously to rest, recuperate, whatever. So we had got a late call and we're driving back to our station and it's probably like 8.57, you know, like we're like two, three minutes away, you know. And then there was a, a call that drops. It was a car wreck. And so we're like, oh, okay, so we'll go do this. Then it upgrades to an entrapment. And it's like two streets over from where I'm at. So we're obviously going to be the first unit in. And um, so we get there. We're the first ones there. Fire department's not there, whatever. And these two vehicles went head on. And so they went head on and one vehicle went 50 yards one way and the other one went 50 yards the other way. So we've got about a hundred yard gap between us. And it was me and my partner. And I was not an in charge yet. I was still just a first level paramedic, I guess. So my in charge goes, hey, I'm gonna take a bag and I'm gonna go to this vehicle. It looks you know, more severe you go get your bag and you're going to go to this other vehicle. It doesn't look so severe. So it's like, okay. So I go to my vehicle and, you know, this lady was not doing good at all. Um, we get there. She's very disoriented, very um, out of it. You know, she's not answering any of my questions. She's not doing anything. She's just, she's just looking around very ominously. And I looked down and she had broken both of her arms and, you know, she had compound fractures. So, you know, bones were out and they were kind of resting on a steering wheel. And then like her head was kind of obviously had some fractures there and she uh, was not doing very well. My partner at the time uh, and our radials couldn't get out. So I, I couldn't, you know, tell my partner that, hey, I needed help. I couldn't call for any other resources. I knew other ambulances were coming, but at the time, right, I had no one there but me. And um, and you're just looking at this patient and there's a hundred things that need to happen, right, in, in this split second, right? I need to control the bleeding from her arms, right? I also, I need to ventilate for this patient because right now, like, she's not ventilating uh, effectively on her own due to the massive skull fractures that she had that were, you know, pushing on her brain, causing her to have a, an erratic breathing pattern. Um, also, you know, she was trapped in the vehicle, so I couldn't get her out even if I wanted to, to start potentially working on her. Another factor in all these calls is that kind of gets overlooked is our crowds, you know, so other people had stopped. So I've got, you know, like five people behind me, like, what are you doing? Why are you just standing there? Why aren't you helping her? Like, what do you got to, you know? And, I, and for me, you know, as like what 22 year old kid or something like it's hard to keep your focus on this and explain to these, you know, these civilians, right. Who obviously they just want the best for the patient, just like you do. Right. But I can't get this lady out. You know, she, the, the door had literally like almost like welded to her. I mean, just crushed into her and she was forming. I, couldn't open it we couldn't open the door get to this lady and just presenting with so many problems right like how how do you effectively manage you know essentially what comes to, comes out is like a train wreck initially you know and so you really have to take a step back take a breather you know and just go back to your training and your muscle memory and your and your focus on okay well I need to stop her bleeding first because that's what's going to take her life the fastest and then I need to do this you know utilizing my resources too on scene you know I had one of the civilians kind of hold, hold her neck to help you know maintain her c-spine also with the position that we had her in it could also help open up her airway so that you know it could stay open and patent enough until I got other providers there eventually you know they came and the call played out but um for me that was humbling just because at that point, I never had anybody who was 
really had multiple problems going on at the same time. And it was a, a really big ego check at that time of, hey, like, you don't know everything like you think you may, right? Or you may not be as good as this job as, as you think you are. And I think that needs to happen for, for any provider who is going to eventually become a leader and to have any sort of influence. And for me, like that was a really big day, um, really big humility dose. And thankfully, I, I haven't had any big ego checks like that again, but it really kind of put me in my place. And I think with that, being able to set aside that ego and to, you know, realize like, you know, you, you don't know everything like you think you do, you know, always stay, uh, you know, always have that mindset of being teachable, always being able to learn new techniques, always being able to refresh what you think you may know. Part of my job right now, you know, as a captain is I train new employees as well as I, uh, I help evaluate paramedics who are wanting to become an in-charge and operate on their own ambulance. So one of the first things I'll do is I'll pull them into the ambulance and I'll ask them, you know, like, what do you need to work on? You know, and the people who are like, oh, I know it all. You know, for me, I'm like, you're lying to yourself. <laughs> you know, there's there's something that you can always work on to improve. Um, or, you know, if there's an area that they do need improvement on, we'll focus that. But after I get that talk out of the way, then we'll go over medications. And there's small, you know, medications, uh, small little things that they may do that I think a lot of people, you know, forego and uh, will miss because they think they know everything about the medicine. You know, and the instance I would use was we used to carry uh, this medicine called calcium gluconate. And we would use it for, you know, many things, you know, if there was, they were uh, hyperkalemic or they had a lot of potassium. Or, you know, if they had overdosed on whatever various medications, we would typically give it for that. Uh, but one of the things that this medicine would do was that it would help treat uh, muscle spasms and a black widow spider bite. And no one would know that, you know, and and I think personally that it's because um, they think that they they know a lot about the medication, so they don't ever have to go back and review and stay studied up. And so that was always my big kind of point for these, uh, for these people that, Hey, you may have read this medication for years and you may think, you know, it, but you know, it's very important that you stay up to date on, on everything with it so that you can be the best provider that you can be and make a difference in somebody's life. But I mean, people stand out for, you know, for all kinds of different reasons, but I guess those are probably my two biggest things I can think of right now off the top of my head. Yeah, that's, Wow, that was a that was a lot to take in, you know. And I think, um, I think when Jada said most interesting case, I think as you explain these cases, I realized that medically interesting is not all is not always equivalent to you know. Interesting is that as in like something you would want to take in. It sounds like you learned a lot from it. Clearly, you had an ego check in that high intensity situation. Um, yeah, so I, I thought that was really cool. So just for our final question, before we wrap up our interview, um, we just like to ask our, um, you know, our interviewees, what is a typical, very typical, like Tuesday afternoon, not a Tuesday afternoon, of course, what's a typical day in the life like? Because it sounds like you're very, you know, involved in the community and teaching others, but what does that sum up to for you? So for me, um... Obviously, I, I work with uh, my partner. I work with them every day. Um, with that, I'm based out of a fire station, so I have a group of fire guys that we also work out or work with. Um, so I'll, I'll get to work every morning about 6.45. Our shift starts at 7, and we do 24-hour shifts, for, so from 7 a.m. to 7 a.m. Uh, so once we get to work, um, the first thing that we do is we – we check off the ambulance. We make sure everything is there. Um, so that way we can obviously start our day knowing that all of our drugs, all of our uh, tools, all of our um, just equipment in general is in top working order and resupplied and stocked. Um, 
so we'll go check off that. My partner will start, uh, you know, reviewing all of our medical bags. And uh, as the in charge, my job responsibility is to uh, maintain control of the the narcotics. So we're, you know, that's our, you know, big pain medicines, or you know, benzos, all that. So me and the other in charge will get together, and we will do the narcotic exchange. So I'll take the the drugs from that person and I'll attribute them into my name. Uh, once we had the ambulance done and checked off, we will then go and, you know, wash the truck, clean the station, make sure everything is, you know, in working order, looking nice and pristine. Cause we're obviously, you know, a public entity. So, you know, we'll have public come by every now and then kids will want to see the fire trucks and the ambulances, or, you know, we'll have observers that want to come and stand by. And so being able to start off the day with a, you know, the good step forward, you know, can help set the pace for the day. Once we've done that and we've cleaned the station and we've done all of our chores that we have to do, you know, the day is ours. So sometimes we'll go, we'll immediately take a nap <laughs> if we can. Um, you know, that for me, I normally got to go check up on emails because uh, I do a lot of the teaching, you know, outside of this job. Um, or outside of the uh, ambulance side, you know, I teach stop the bleed to school districts. I also, you know, do training for law enforcement and stuff like that. So I'll, I'll check up on emails. Um, if I have an in-charge candidate or if I have uh, a new employee at this point, right, we'll, I'll start breaking down uh, what we're going to learn today and the topics with that. Um, currently right now, I don't have uh a new hire or a uh, an in charge candidate, but my partner is wanting to get his in charge. And so, from here we'll go and we'll go over some higher level uh, material in preparation for him to get his in charge. Um, from there, we'll normally go get some breakfast, uh, hang out with the fire guys. Lately, we've been playing a lot of pickleball. <laughs> if you know what that is, yeah. So we've been playing some pickleball. You know, killing some time. Uh, but for me, at my station, we fortunately don't get a lot of downtime. We're only pretty busy. We do, on average, uh, like 16 calls a day. And so I'm normally gone for about 90% of my day. Uh, just once we get back from the station, I'll restock the ambulance, and then we'll go back out on another call, most likely. But um, EMS, you do have like a, a lot of freedom with your day once you do all your duties. Um, when I was at a slower station, I was um, I was going to college, so I was doing like online classes while I was doing uh, while I was at work. Um, some people will bring their PlayStations up and they'll play PlayStation all day, or you know they'll watch movies um, and whatever you want to do. You know, there's uh, with this job, you know, it's different than you know nursing or uh you know being a physician right where you have you know your set cases for the day or you're stuck in an er for 12 hours and you're constantly getting patients um we have a lot more freedom in that regard and so if there's nothing to do um, it's really whatever you want to do at that point um and ems you know kind of one of the things that drew me to it i guess is that there is no like typical Tuesday, you know, Tuesday could be the worst day of the whole week or, you know, and you would think a Saturday night on a full moon, you think the world's going to fall apart and, you know, you get absolutely nothing that day. It's uh, no day is, you know, ever the same. And um, that obviously keeps, you know, interest high and things like that in the job. Yeah, I can definitely say I've experienced the fast paced days and then definitely the slower paced yes. days. Um, where we really don't have much at all going on. Um, but thank you so much uh, for sharing your story with us and explaining a little more um, about what paramedics do and more specifically what you do. Um, you hit a lot of really important points, including the mental health and also uh, the importance of educating the community and other people that work with you. And I think that um, Emlyn and I have both uh, learned a lot from your experiences and we, and we hope that uh, our listeners um, We'll have that same feeling as well. So we just want to say thank you again. Yeah, anytime. Thank you. Anytime. Of course. I can say myself, I just finished an internship at a cardiologist's office. And, you know, it's 
the same things that you said drew you in to being a paramedic are the same things that are I guess the opposite that we experience and he's mostly in the clinic um you know I'll go to the hospital a couple times a couple different hospitals and watch procedures but you know the same way that you just said that um being kept on your toes and like never knowing what to expect is almost the opposite and I could see I could see the beauty in both you know with your job you know you're always interested you never know what's going to come next but at the same time like if you do know to expect 20 patients with hypertension one patient that needs an angiogram one patient that needs um, a loop recorder implant and like I guess that takes some of the stress away from the job but it's been really interesting to see both sides of it so I really appreciate it oh yeah yeah thanks again anytime Anytime. awesome y'all have a good one you too too. thank you so much for listening to this episode of stories behind the scrubs if you haven't already listened to the last episode with dr casey patrick set aside some time to check that out if you look forward to hearing our next podcast episode click the subscribe button and be sure to follow our instagram at stories behind the scrubs and check out some of our other episodes